I grew up in an old gold rush mining town in California that was supposedly extremely haunted. It's filled with historical buildings, old mines, caves, museums, railroads, and a long history of hangings. Every person I've ever known there, locals and tourists alike, have had stories about sighting an apparition in the haunted hotel, seeing floating orbs in the graveyards, feeling the touch of unsettled spirits in their homes, or hearing voices. I even remember reading a story published in our local newspaper about butter flying off the shelf in an old diner. While I would never be naive enough to say that everyone in the town was lying, I was never able to put much stock into these stories because in the 14 years I lived there, I never once saw or experienced anything remotely paranormal. Needless to say, when I left for college, I didn't really believe in ghosts. So I had no reason to believe the new stories I encountered at Sonoma State about a place called Haystack Landing. Just like my hometown, everyone on campus gossiped non-stop about how haunted the Haystack house was, saying that it was cursed with one disaster after another, including early settlers who went crazy and killed each other, multiple accounts of unexplainable deaths, mass suicides, numerous reports of spectral sightings, and even stories of livestock that refused to eat the grass on the property. One night, as curious college students, my roommate, her boyfriend, and our neighbor decided to go check out the house for ourselves. We laughed and joked the whole way there, until we pulled up to the house. I don't have the words to explain it, but it was as though the house suddenly crept up on us, like it was just abruptly looming over us in the night. I remember my friend slamming on the brakes, and we all immediately stopped talking and just stared up at it in silence. We all got out of the car and really took a good look at this house. There was a bright moon out, enough to clearly see the waist-high grass engulfing the property, but I swear to you, none of that moonlight was reflecting off of this house. It was as though the house was absorbing the darkness. Like I said, I didn't believe in evil spirits, but in that moment, I was blindsided by an overwhelming urge to run away. I was terrified. The kind of fear where you can't swallow, you can't speak, and tears start to well up in your eyes. The boys instantly darted towards the house to check it out, but my roommate and I did not budge. She and I stared at each other with a consensual fuck no expression. We sat on the hood of the car and nervously watched the flashlight from the boys whip around the house with an occasional flash from their cameras. Once back in the dorm, the guys showed us all the photos they had taken by sticking their arms in through the boarded up windows. There wasn't really anything unusual in the photos. It just looked like an old 1800s house ravaged by bad weather and squatters. We all laughed it off and went to sleep. I in my room, my roommate and her boyfriend in hers, and our neighbor slept on the couch in the living room. I don't know what time it was, but I remember being woken up by the light from the living room turning on and off, shining into my room since my door was open. Now, from my bed, all I could see was the large mirror in the hallway, and this was the moment none of us would ever forget. From my bed, I saw a dark figure standing in the hallway, or rather, the reflection of a dark figure on the other side of my door that I could clearly see in the mirror. Startled, I tried to sit up, but there was a pressure on my chest. It felt as if I was being held down. 
the lights were still going on and off in the living room. I thought I was having a nightmare and tried to wake myself up when I heard my roommate yell, Oh my God! In the reflection, I saw her boyfriend dart into the hallway. He looked terrified. He ran into my room and yelled, What the hell was that? I was able to get up, and all three of us ran into the living room to find our neighbor sitting upright on the couch, staring at us. He was pale and looked morbidly perturbed. We frantically asked him if he saw anything. He said he was confused, because according to him, we had all just been in the other room talking to him this whole time. He never said about what. None of us experienced anything like that again after that night. And one year later, that house burned to the ground under suspicious conditions, according to the firefighters. My friends and I suspect that someone else had a similar experience and took matters into their own hands. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I am a shundered... Michael nice. Tatum. That's a new word that you just made up I a made little while up. ago. Yeah. It's a combination of shivers and shudders. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You were like, you said, I shunder to think. Yeah. And, and I, was I was like, like oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Was, I gotta make sure my phone is off. I know. You're so irresponsible. That's <laughs> <laughs> all on me. I'm so shundered. I just can't focus. And um, this is Ghoul Intentions. Hello. <laughs> I think that's a record for getting our title in. That it, you, I'm so it's proud probably, of us. Yeah, we, <laughs> we did got good. like just a couple minutes after yeah. the, the cold open, we nice. got it in. I'm yeah, good. We're doing a good. We're doing good work. Jamie. We are. I feel very proud of us. Me too. What's our title? <laughs> our title today is fearful, fearful symmetry. Fearful symmetry. And what yes. pray tell is fearful symmetry? It comes from the poem by William Blake entitled "Tiger, Tiger." Uh, well, it's just called The Tiger, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful, complicated... One of my favorite poems by William Blake, who is probably one of the most difficult poets in the language because he was uh, kind of a nut. Um, right. Brilliant, but, whew, man, did he... He, uh, sort of, he was a poet and, a, and an artist uh, who's, you know, well-earned his reputation as a genius, but he was a mystic, which means he was on this whole other level. And most people, and his poem is his poems tend to be very dense and that t- require a lot of unpacking. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tiger is probably his most one of his most accessible. And it's not very long, is it? No, no, it's only like you, six stanzas, six, wanna, six quatrains. They're I've, called. I printed it out. Would you like to read it for us? I would. How thoughtful of you! I yes, know. I would love to read it. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'm I'm not practiced, so just bear with me, all of you. Oh God. Tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? And what grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? (sighs) 
And that's William Blake. That is William Blake. Thank you, William Blake, for that submission. A a late 18th century poet slash mystic who uh, (laughs) most people probably know him or know of him because he was the inspiration. He was he was the artist who inspired the killer from uh, Red Dragon, the first in the Hannibal series. Yeah. Okay. Huh. That's where the term Red Dragon came, actually, from oh. a painting of William Blake's that the killer was obsessed with. Oh, well, all right. I did not know that. Interesting. Thank you, by the way, Joanna, who actually was in, did our submission, our cold open submission. It was a good story, It was a Joanna. great story. Very creepy. Very, very creepy. Stupid college kids. That's how you get ghosts to follow you home. I mean, you say stupid college kids, and I say, look, you have a great story now. That's right. <laughs> I'm not saying stupid in a... doing the work. <laughs> I'm not being judgmental. I mean, we've all been there. Yeah. We've all been there. That's what... Do you think you were braver in college with that kind of stuff? Like, now you're like, fuck a bunch of that, like, and and you're, like, fascinated by it. Right. But, you know, you won't go into a dark room by yourself where there's a noise. You've watched enough horror movies by now to know it's a bad choice. I'm learned now. You're learned. (laughs) And... You're you're wiser. I've I've been wizened. Um, (laughs) But, no, I don't think I've ever... I actually think I'm braver now. Because I used to be terrified of the ideas of seeing a ghost Mm -hmm. which don't get me wrong it still freaks me out but um i remember one time i was a little stoned (laughs) and i know it's hard to believe let me take Um, sorry let me take a sip of my (laughs) moscow Moscow mule Mule. um cope with you being i know on some substance it's shocking uh and i remember sitting and thinking about how one time um, I was in the, I lived in a haunted house and this door would open and close all the time. And like the, it would unlock the latch would unlock and it didn't matter. That doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Like, and it was on the second floor balcony mm. and you, it would just unlock itself. And I had to put a box of magazines in front of it to keep it from opening because it happened all the time. And it usually only happened when, when I was gone. And so I would come home and it would be open and it's not that anybody was breaking in because the latch was one of those that you couldn't unlock from the outside. Mm-hmm. So it's a deadbolt. Basically. It was a deadbolt. Yeah. It was a privacy lock. Yeah, it was a deadbolt, and there was another one, like the little, like oh, slidey lock. Uh, like a yeah, I think you know just, what I'm talking about not latches, but, are but they like a latch. It was like, like a that, latch. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lock and a latch, and both of those would be opened, um, a lot. And so I came home <sighs> one day and. Uh, my dog Leela, who's blind, was on the balcony and she heard me and she's coming in and she started walking towards the edge of the balcony. So I had to run up really quickly and get her. And I was so mad at what had happened that I just yelled at whatever it was in the house and told it that my dog was off limits and I cussed it out and told it to go fuck off. And, you know, I went I went to town. And in my moment, if I were a ghost and you did that to me, I would stop whatever I, I was, was doing. so mad. Uh, our friend Leah was with me at the time and she looked frightened. <laughs> she was like, oh, <laughs> She was shit. like, did I do this somehow? <laughs> she I don't... was like, it's like she stood in the corner like I was yelling at someone in front of her and she was like, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> but there well, was nobody I mean, else in the room. I'm glad she didn't think I was yelling at her. There was somebody there. We just couldn't Yeah, see I was so mad. Uh, but then when I was like sitting there a little stoned, I was like, you know, in a fight or flight... I'm definitely a fight. So I feel like the scarier shit that happens, the angrier I will get at it. Because that's happened too when like I've had uh, I had a van follow me once 
You know this story. Oh, I do. I was jogging and there was a big white van following me from block to block. Very clearly. I don't mean to laugh at that because that's fucking terrifying. It was terrifying. I'm laughing because I know where the story is going. Yeah. Um, and I noticed it and I saw it and I was like, I went, I, I, I noticed it kind of pulled to the side of the road and then I kept jogging and then it went to the next block and waited as I ran past it. And then it went to the next block and waited as I ran past it. And um, I made like a what gesture, like what the fuck? <laughs> gesture I wish you motherfucker would. While while I was walking, right? <laughs> like while I was jogging, I was like what? And then I kept going, and it followed me to the next block. So I just charged the van like I was gonna push it over, and I sc- started screaming at him like, "What the fuck do you want?" And they peeled out and drove off. And so I feel like the more scared I am, the more violent <laughs> I get. Like you find the anger, you find the anger in the fear and use it, fear. which is, I think, very smart most of the time. Yeah, there's I no, try to do that. nothing intelligent about what I'm doing. It's all instinct to kill <laughs> or be killed. <laughs> and so that was, um, or at least if I'm going to die, I'm going to go down fighting. Right. That was a. That was like it was a. It was it was kind of a freeing thing to realize that I didn't really have to be as scared as I had been most of my life because. I was just going to get mad anyway. Yeah, I mean, right. What about, what about you? Are you more afraid now? or No, I am definitely braver than I was yeah. when I was young. I used to be I used to be the kind of kid that would, like, be a complete coward when, like, my older brother uh, was watching horror movies. Like, I wouldn't even, like, want to be where I could hear them. Mm-hmm. Because I'd be like, no, I can't. It's scary. I'm going to have a nightmare. And now I love the shit. Now right. I'm like, I cult, like, I love dark, crazy shit. Like, I know when... It, when um, doing the research for my story this week that I kind of texted you and said, man, this shit has me in a really weird headspace. Yeah. And, and I had some weird stuff happen yeah. in our apartment. Um, I mean, there's a lot of crazy shit going on in our apartment either way. Right now that's not paranormal, but a couple things I was like, did I do that? Is that, do I have powers? <laughs> you do Michael. You I don't do think I don't want them. Uh, well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I want them, but I li- I'd like I just, more control over I'd them. I'd like to know how to use them. Right, just, just, I feel like this is a great opening chapter to me, like, doing, like, a Dark Knight, yeah, <laughs> Batman right. Begins, kind of like a training movie. What's your origin? Yeah, my origin is I just got pissed off at my landlord, and now weird things are happening around my apartment because I'm so angry at my landlord. Right, turns um, out rage works for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely, I'm braver now than I used to be. I, I think, actually, probably from knowing you, I'm much... Really? Yeah, I, we, it's that phrase that you use so often that I love, finding your no. I found my no, I think, through you. I'm like, that's a great phrase. And so, whereas now, whereas like maybe 10, 15 years ago, I'd have been like, no, I know if that's okay with you. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, fuck you, no! <laughs> and then no. immediately, And then immediately turn around like, sorry, I may have, re- uh, I may have overreacted. No, I, I'm not interested right. in any of your Girl Scout cookies, little yeah. girl. Thank you. I'll tell you, the best thing uh, my therapist ever said to me was to say no to everybody. And I had to do it for like a month. And it was so fucking hard. But once I did it, um, I actually told people, too, that were close to me that I was going to do it. And once I did it, it wasn't only apparent to me how much I didn't say no to people and how much I did for them. It was apparent to my loved ones who were like, oh, shit, I can't ask her to do this because she's going to say no. Now, the rule was I could change my mind. I could say I had to say no at first. Think about it, and then I could change my mind. That's a good technique. It was great. I highly recommend it. Try it for a month, anybody. It's it'll fucking change your life. And so, uh, you know, people would, my loved ones would 
know if they were going to ask me to do something that I would immediately say no. And all it would put them in a different space of I can figure this out myself. I don't need to bother her about this. So people around me oh. changed. I mean, I'll tell you. So some, in a roundabout way, you kind of empower them yes, to come to solutions they uh, otherwise exactly. wouldn't have thought they were capable of because and, they because you're not because you've made yourself less accessible. Yes, exactly. To their worst impulses. And I could make a choice based upon how much time I had, how much, you know, brain space I had so that I wasn't running on empty fumes for like all of my life. And yeah. And so what ended up happening is I, you know, there were some people in my life that are no longer in my life because Mm -hmm. they were just fucking sponges. And once they could not use me the way that they had been, once I couldn't produce for them, like I had been, it it was, it, they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. It was I'm, kind of interesting. I'm going through something somewhat similar right now. And, uh, and, my, like, and my kind of drawing that line in the sand with a no, mm-hmm. uh, you got to figure this out for yourself before I'll even consider helping you. Yeah. Um, which sounds like an asshole thing to say, but it sounds like an asshole thing to say by and large to people who want me to say yes just to protect them from having to make a decision yeah, and right. that's not a that's not a good habit for someone to have well and and by doing that you not only take responsibility for the times you say yes so you can really commit to when you're saying yes right, you're not saying yes right. to everybody but you make other people take responsibility for when you say no yeah you know then they have to take responsibility for their life their choices what they were having you do mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some people don't like that some people don't, you know, and, but, and, and, you know, you know but, God love them, but I just don't want to be. I don't want to deal with them. Yeah. And you get, and, <laughs> I, I don't want to deal with them. And that's what's great, too, is you get to make the choice of whether or not you want to or you don't, because you're in a space where you're able to make choices mm. because you've you put are, up that. People are afraid great. to say no, because especially in this business, I know a lot oh, of people yeah. are terrified of turning down work. Because, uh, you know, either for personal reasons or for purely logistical ones, they will commit to something they shouldn't be doing because they're afraid of if they turn it down, no one will ever ask them again because they'll get a reputation for being difficult. And I think that kind of extends to people in their personal life. Like, they don't want to be the person that's negative. They don't want to be the person that says no because they... I know for myself personally, I don't want to say no or didn't want to say no to people because I didn't want to say people to say no to me. But it was only after I realized that, like, no, it's actually some of the best choices I've made have mm-hmm. when been have, have have been the result of someone basically going, no, you got to do this for yourself. Yeah. Not across the board, but but you know, no is a very powerful thing, it and is. it actually uh, kind of brings me to the story I'm going to tell today. So, so that's all of this episode of empowering yourself by <laughs> right. saying no. See but, how many of you were listening to a ghost story episode. You had no idea you were going to get a quick little therapy session. That's right. Just uh, say no to like people. So, so here's the thing about uh, why I thought "Fearful Symmetry" would be a good title for mm-hmm. this episode. Uh, the Tiger, the poem by William Blake that I read earlier, is superficially, but but not. Uh, it, it's a it's an indictment of God in a way. At least, it's certainly the 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 late. 18th century conception of God as he was in Europe of like, hey, you created this evil fucking thing. I mean, tigers to to a European imagination in that time were really fierce beasts that were just pure violence, beautiful and majestic and exotic, but absolute fucking killing machines and terrifying because of it. There was really they, they were they they still are. Well, they still are. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I want you to think. I want you to put yourself in the mindset of a William Blake, right. who uh, would have probably not had the opportunity to see a tiger uh, up close very often, except unless they came in town onto exhibit or whatever. And here were these giant cats, beautiful creatures, but that basically want to eat you. They are mm-hmm. all instinct. They don't give a fuck what they have. They have a very strong no. Uh, <laughs> and in the, in the time, so Blake in his in this poem is really talking about what could have created this. You know what what God, as we conceive of Him, uh, Blake would have said, would also make something this clearly this evil, this violent, this, you know, um, when he says, you know, and and he says later in his other works, you know, like there's a law for the lamb and there's a law for the tiger. Like in other words, you know, it was kind of, in some ways Blake was kind of the, um, the forerunner to a lot of ideas about modern magic in the sense of, you know, the, the Crowley, uh, the Alistair Crowley dictum do without will should be the whole of the law is basically like no there's you have to be true to your nature so whatever dictum someone else gives you is not necessarily going to apply anyway so the tiger in blake's poem kind of represents this beautiful yet terrifying and Mm -hmm. fascinating force of evil uh you know because a tiger wants to fucking eat you right (laughs) and kill you uh that's probably how those people who didn't like me saying no feel about me now and it's kind of, and it's it's really funny. We should say, instead of finding your no, find your inner tiger. That's right. T-Y-G-E-R. <laughs> let, let someone say about you, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. Fucking A. Um, I also thought fearful symmetry was a good, mm-hmm. like, uh, nod to the fact that some of the evidence in my own story uh, has to do with some uh, photographs that are very would have been are still considered almost impossible to have faked yeah but the story is a dark one as you Mm -hmm. might have probably guessed from the nature of the the my interpretation of the poem uh so i should i think i should give a bit of a trigger warning like this is a very rough very very um Alarming story. I know I told you that while, while I was researching it that I was in a very weird headspace and had a couple of nightmares, which I don't often get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's worth telling. So any of you listening that don't uh, particularly want to hear some of the more unpleasant details, I do encourage you to pass the story over altogether and just wait for right. Jamie's toward the toward the halfway mark. Um, because there will be mentions of child abuse and sexual assault, rape, that kind of thing. It, it's It's a dark story. Uh, the reason I chose it is because not only is it a really fascinating story that generated a lot of publicity at the time and has since kind of disappeared from the radar, it's one of the few stories of its kind that were as well known when it originally happened that have yet to be debunked. Um, There's a lot of stories from this same time, like the same time as like the Amityville Horror and things of that nature, like we're just the subject of so much scrutiny that they, you know, we've changed our opinions on those things time and again, you know, with each decade, mm-hmm. more evidence comes out to either suggest it was fake or not fake, but mm-hmm. not with this. So I am going to tell the story of Doris Bythers. It's a name you have probably never heard before. Never in my life. So her story and what happened to her over the court, what was witnessed of her story by a group of professional parapsychologists, uh, parapsychological researchers from UCLA over the course of about um, two and a half months, uh, was not only the basis of a pretty, uh, as I recall, a best-selling horror novel by an author named Frank DiFalita, was also a basis of a successful 1983 film starring Oscar winner Barbara Hershey called oh. The Entity. Yes. Now both are kind of forgotten about. 
though the entity is quite a good film. I've never read the novel, but I hear it's pretty good. So let me get into like what I'm talking about here. So we're, we're going to be talking about a poltergeist, which is its own special kind of category, especially in modern annals of, of uh, parapsychology. And the concept of a poltergeist is really old, but it seems to have kind of made its American debut in uh, 1848 with the Fox sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, that winter in their in their home, there were all these weird goings on, including wrappings, and the sisters supposedly could communicate with the entity that was responsible for making these noises, moving things about, and that's that's what kicked off the wildly influential spiritualist movement in America, right. which but changed. They were not telling the truth. They were they, and in fact, yeah. yes, older sister Margaret at least came out much later in life and suggested the whole thing was a hoax. But there's still a lot of debate about whether or not what happened happened, or whether. Maybe the sisters experienced something real and had to supplement it for the public because they couldn't command this stuff at will. And so they had to add some fakery in there. Who knows? But but that's that's kind of when the word poltergeist and all the kind of things that come with it, you know, uh, spirits that move things and they're noisy and cause a lot. They're very mischievous, childlike, active hauntings attached to a person. Well, sometimes you do. Oh. Uh, and that, that's, we'll, that's, we'll learn in the story I'm about to tell you. Tell me everything. So, um, but I, I wanted to talk about it real quick. So, but here's the thing about poltergeist activity. The, the word poltergeist is German in origin, which means literally noisy spirit. Mm-hmm. But it's thought to be, at least by one researcher by the name of uh, Claude, uh, Claude Leconteux, who's a French uh, medievalist, who like really fascinating guy who's like researched all this stuff and like ancient texts and even back going back to like pre-Christian pagan times to be like what did we think about this before the Christians got a hold of it which is a very useful tool uh, when exploring this kind of phenomenon. Poltergeists were one the the term was popularized at least originally by among others Martin Luther. Uh, who, in his mind, being, you know, the uber-Protestant, was like, all things, all ghosts are evil. (laughs) Right. And I know a lot, Mm -hmm. especially because I grew up in two different churches, that was the belief of a lot of people. Anything anything ghosty was just a demon tricking you. Right, right. Exactly. And they make, like (laughs) your dogs dogs, are going crazy right now. They're they're finding their no. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Or they're being... Oh my God, can you guys hear that? Of course you can. It's it's, it's it. <laughs> answer us. <laughs> not once for yes, not twice for no. Or just or just let your knee crack. That's right. Um. Anyway, so for most of us, we think when we think poltergeist, we think the movie, the the nineteen eighty one movie for, by yeah, Toby Hooper. I don't Hooper. know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was nineteen eighty one and nineteen eighty two. Excuse me, no, 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 it was nineteen eighty two. He must be so embarrassed. I, I'm, I'm so sorry, everyone. I failed you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and that's what most of us think when we think of Poltergeist, right? Because that's a, such a great film. But if you digging back through like medieval texts, like this guy uh, Le Conteau did and has done for his entire career, we find that uh, that the 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 noisy spirit concept that comes from the German is actually a 15th century conflation of multiple pagan entities brought under a single umbrella, uh, single umbrella to better jibe with prevailing Christian notions of the supernatural at the mm. time. So basically, so the one demon does all this shit. Basically, okay. yeah. So all these things that we associate with poltergeist activity, one demon, activity, one god. <laughs> yeah, they're very, theme. they're very, they're very unilateral. Uh, <laughs> 
man. Simple. So all Simple. these, all these, uh, this, this kind of activity, the you know, the the noises and the the knocking and the rapping and the the doors closing and objects flying and occasional apparitions that make no sense whatsoever, uh, were thought in pagan times to come from a whole host of different creatures that things like brownies and pukas. Uh, mm-hmm. the wee folk, all kinds of spirits, revenants, that uh, medieval clergy uh, in Europe were kind of, they were they scorned to let their parishioners believe in because it kind of threatened what they were trying to, like, no, no, we're, we're Christians now, everyone, get on board. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but anyway, I could, I could go on that, right? uh, and I won't, but so beginning sometime in the mid-20th century, though, as parapsychology was trying to emerge as a scientific discipline mm-hmm. with varying results, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was trying to become respectable, and in some senses it succeeded, though now it's having a bit of a rough go. Right. Uh, mostly, I think, because of the entertainment industry, but I, I won't go off on that tangent. Because we're taking advantage of that right fucking now. <laughs> we are infotainment. <laughs> Info. <laughs> we are not. Uh, sorry. Anyway, we no. Were. So, beginning in the in around this time, in like the early part, in the middle of the the twentieth century, parapsychology tended to take the view that poltergeist activity didn't come from uh, supernatural creatures or from the dead, but from the living. Okay. And so, this is going to bring me into the story of Doris Bythers. So in the summer of 1974, a gentleman by the name of Kerry Gaynor and his friend were discussing parapsychology, which was the former's chosen field, while they were pursuing the shelves of Hunter's Bookstore, just uh, not far from UCLA. Kerry worked on campus as a research assistant, and his friend was very intrigued, and in the midst of their conversation, this woman, neither one of them knew, had overheard them and came up and said, you should meet my friend Doris. Doris's mm. house is haunted as fuck. This is a very conjuring meeting. It, it, it kind of kind is. Of and and I, I, I wonder if the conjuring didn't kind of take a, a note from this. Because this is also dramatized in both the movie and the book, uh, mm. The Entity. So Carrie worked under a guy whose name has come up before in this podcast, Dr. Barry Taft, the mm-hmm. parapsychologist with UCLA. And so he took Doris's, oh, the guy that uh, investigated the comedy, the comedy store, store that you yeah. mentioned in the last episode, right? Well, he's done a lot of stuff, as we'll hear, but this is one of his more memorable, if not maybe most memorable cases. So Gary, uh, you know, uh, Carrie Gaynor took Doris's information and was like, I'll pass it on to Barry. And we'll go from there. Now, now, Dr. Barry Taft's interest in paranormal, just to kind of talk about him for a little bit, that grew out of a childhood that was just rife with strange experiences. Like, this guy had shit that just ran the gamut. Clairvoyance, seeing full-bodied apparitions, uh, uh, precognition, telekinesis even, so he claims. And so he got really into this, and it uh, he wanted to... Uh, apply for a position under Dr. Thelma Moss, who was then head of UCLA's now defunct parapsychology lab. Mm -hmm. And he did. They had a a rather famous meeting where she interviewed him and threw him, uh, tossed him a set of keys and said, just, you know, uh, what, tell me, rattle off whatever impressions you get from these. And he did. And in the course of this interview, he kind of said, he was like holding these keys and he said, well, I'm, I'm seeing a kind of a heavy set blonde woman who who very fond of drink and and she's your best friend uh and in fact one of the keys on the ring was the house key of actress shelly winters who was moss's best friend he also taff described her deceased husband in vivid detail whom he could not have known and so Taff, and Taff was, uh, you know, he so impressed uh, Dr. Thelma Moss, who was very well known and who herself a very rigorous scientific mind, 
uh, was so impressed by him that she actually studied him at length before hiring him and wrote a paper on him that gained some traction in parapsychology circles. And Taft went on from there. He, he became, uh, basically, he worked under her beginning in 1969 and since then has conducted something like over 4,000 investigations into paranormal events. Mm -hmm. And he'll be the first to admit that a large number of those, like the vast majority, in fact, never really right. led anywhere because he's like that's just scientific research a lot of times he'll tell you that a lot of these experiences don't produce reliable scientific evidence but every now and again they do and it just so happens when carrie Gaynor came to him with doris's story and he decided to follow that lead on a whim that it did it it wound up taking them down this rabbit hole that turned out to be one of the most fucking crazy and disturbing and well-documented uh, instances of poltergeist hauntings mm -hmm. uh, on record. Now, as I said, Doris's story is really, really disturbing. So the house that she lived in was off of Braddock Drive in, Culver, in Culver City, California. And uh, Taff went to, Taff and Gaynor went to do kind of an initial interview to kind of size her up, see is she, she real, is she just seeking publicity, is she uh, mentally ill? And he, he described the house as kind of small and slovenly, and it was filled to bursting by Doris, who was a single mother, and her three kids at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, she had a 16-year-old a boy, a I believe a 14-year-old boy, and a 12-year-old daughter, all living in this space that was basically a hoarder's paradise. Like, right. uh, And according to Taff as well, he, he said in, in so many words that Doris was more interested in kind of self-medicating than she was being a responsible mom. Which created a lot of tension between her and her oldest son. They fought all the time. Now, mind you, poltergeist activity does tend to center around people that are going through some shit. Yeah. And they're having emotional problems. Doris did have a history of being abused as a child, horrifically so, by her parents. And in her adult life, she had just gone, sadly, from, from shithead man to shithead violent man that she seemed to have kind of a fatal weakness for. Uh, time and again, uh, had been abused, raped. All she was just not in a happy place, and had does, seemingly had never been. Right. So, of course, like a lot of people that suffer from that kind of PTSD that that would naturally come about, she she medicated uh, mm -hmm. with uh, with alcohol. Okay. And uh, while we may be tempted when hearing that detail to kind of discount her claims as the ravings of just a sad alcoholic, bear in mind that over 20 people that wound up investigating with Taff saw things that they were trained to be able to debunk and that an inebriated person would have not been able to stage. Right, okay. Well, it's so, also something to keep in mind, too, mm -hmm. is, you know, as much as people want to say if people are inebriated that they could see things, or in, in reality what happens is I don't know a lot of drunk people that hallucinate. You know what That's I mean? very true. So what actually is the case is it because uh, just like it, it takes away your <coughs> so social wall. So you have if you mm -hmm. are anxious in a social situation, you have a drink, you're more open to that social situation. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to dance, you have five drinks. All of a sudden, you're the best dancer ever. It opens you up to that <laughs> dance that's, experience. That's how it works for me, right? So in reality, it also opens up your your that other wall so right. that well, you are more susceptible to seeing and hearing Taff and the other researchers wound up theorizing that like maybe when doors because throughout the story she progressively starts backing off on the alcohol mm -hmm. and the more she does the less things happen mm 
Mm-hmm. So basically, when she stops guzzling beer, the activity stops. But when she's drunk, shit goes haywire. And I mean fucking haywire. Now, during the initial interview, she insisted that she that there were three distinct male ghosts in the house that stalked her and her family all the time. Uh, the entities would brush up against them, push them, grab their hair, you know, the typical slew of things. This ter- this is terrifying, uh, but she would be walking down the hallway or through the kitchen and suddenly slam into the invisible form of oh. what felt like a man no. that would often push her back. Well, clearly. Um, fuck a bunch of that. And uh, she said, like, all kinds of activity was going on, like objects flying across the room, lights going on and off, appliances that would run on their own, even if even when unplugged, which is pretty typical of modern poltergeist manifestations, and incessant knocking all over. It's like frequently it sounded like the house was being just bombarded with rocks from, Ooh. I mean, thousands of them, not just from a bunch of kids outside, you know. And uh, one time Doris claimed a fuse box ripped out of the wall and her hurled itself or hurled itself toward her and then just narrowly missing her. It's another detail that happens a lot in poltergeist cases. Things will get thrown at people, but it will miss them. Just Always narrowly. miss just yeah. narrowly. It's like more designed to scare the shit out of them than to actually do damage. Uh, which is pretty consistent throughout the literature of poltergeist hauntings. And there have been quite a few that have been studied at length, especially during this time, because it was par- poltergeist activity was one of parapsychology's primary focuses. Where they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you're having weird shit happen? Weird- okay, cool, we know this. And so there's, uh, right, there's a writer named Colin Wilson who wrote a book on this, and he, he actually kind of divided it down into stages of the haunting where they would start this way. But anyway, <laughs> that's another rabbit hole. Um, but here's where, in Doris's case, it gets really, really disturbing. This is where her claims are rather unique, especially in modern parapsychology. She claimed that the ghosts sexually assaulted her. Mm. Uh, she'd say that in the dead of night, she could feel two men holding her down, while a third oh. would then rape her. Oh my God. And that this happened frequently enough that even though the assailants were invisible... Uh, and this would happen in the bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, wherever. I mean, it happened multiple times. But she, it would happen so often that even though she couldn't see them, she had a clear picture in her mind of what they looked like. And she's oh. like, the two the two guys that held her down, she said, were kind of short and stocky. Um, and then the, the actual rapist was this gigantic, you know, seven-foot-tall, bald behemoth, very muscular, and, and just fucking terrifying. Yeah. Her son the one that she didn't get along with and who fucking hated her and did not like the fact that these parapsychologists were there because he just thought it was a bunch of bullshit and interrupting his life, still corroborated her story in that regard. He said that he saw her, at least on one occasion, he saw her being attacked like this, like clearly being sexually assaulted by these ghosts that were invisible. He went in to try to intervene and something threw him across the room and snapped his arm. Oh my God. So this is fucking terrifying. Now, of course, this is all during the interview. There's nothing that anyone witnessed but Doris and her family. So, of course, hearing all this within the first few minutes of meeting her did not, unsurprisingly, inspire much confidence in Taff. They were like, bullshit. Yeah, because, I mean, who wants to believe that? Yeah. Uh, you know, even if you found yourself capable, you're like, I don't know, whatever. So Taff just, like, he's like, look, you're you're beyond our help. But I, here's a number of a colleague with the, the psych department of UCLA. Mm-hmm. Call him up. I think you need some therapy. And and Doris, he's surprisingly, was not was not 
didn't take the insult. She was like, thank you, because Doris herself thought, I think I do. I think this is well, crazy. Doris was accepting that a lot of this was crazy, and so she did not trust her own mental state, it right. seems. She wasn't, and that's what kind of makes this so convincing for me, is she wasn't particularly trying to sell this as real. She kind of wanted to be told, no, 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 it's all in your head. Like, she right. wanted to know that, because it was happening to her, and she didn't want to believe it. She called him, though. She called Taft back after just about a week or so and said, like, it's getting worse. And now, if you're interested, there are outside people, neighbors and friends that can corroborate because they've been here to see things. What can you do? So Taft reluctantly finally assembled a team from UCLA to go in and they wound up kind of staking out her, investigating her for about uh, 11 to 12 weeks. Oh, wow. That's a long time. They stayed with her a while. And they stayed with her through... She she moved. And they stayed with her uh, okay. as often as they could. The team, Taft says... And a lot of my sources, a lot of uh, what I'm telling you comes from members of the team, not Doris herself. These come... Doris herself only went on record with the team. She never gave interviews to anyone else. Uh, except the writer of the novel who would come in later who was a friend of hers, but that's we'll get to that. So Taff is my big uh, source for this story and, and okay. for people that worked for him. So they said upon entering the home, uh, the team noted this foul odor that was like rotting flesh. And uh, now given the fact that the home was a hoarder's, you know, is clearly that of a hoarder, like it's not unusual, so they kind of just went with it. Uh, but... They felt their ears, all of them felt their ears pop oh, like from like, pressure. As, as, like from a change in barometric pressure, which made no fucking sense. Yeah. You know, this is Culver City, California. Uh, and they said her bedroom specifically was ice cold, even though Doris did not have AC. And they could not account for it. At some point, Taff himself was kind of looking through the kitchen just to kind of get his bearings and to figure out where's the best place to set up cameras and whatnot when he saw a skillet fly from the cabinet and kind of describe what he calls a ballistic arc mm-hmm. and land on the linoleum. And after that, he was like, okay, we, he and the rest of the team were like, okay, we, uh, <laughs> we should probably take this a little more seriously. Maybe we can we're taking. This is not just something. Yeah. And so they started setting up all this high end equipment and they had a lot of low tech stuff too, to supplement. And they came as prepared as they possibly could. Mind you, this was in the 1974. So parapsychology was still, you know, it was enjoying kind of a pop, popularity among like you know young people because right. it was cool you know it was the age of aquarius but among like so it was struggling to be respectable amid that though mm-hmm. uh so these guys so they brought all this equipment in and interestingly enough the the sexual assault by these ghosts seemed to stop once the team got involved uh but it still they they she she did show them bruises on her mm-hmm. legs and her throat from from one at least one of the attacks she said had happened before they'd gotten there so the team staked out the Culver City home for, as I said, about two and a half months. And during that time, they had some of the most hair-raising encounters of all of their careers. And mind you, these are people in Taff. Again, 4,000 cases he's mm-hmm. done uh, in his career. And he still refers to this one as the one that convinced him. So one night, surrounded by 20 investigators, Doris screamed to Taff that she could see one of the entities looming nearby in a corner. So Taff, who had a Polaroid camera on him at the time, just to kind of mm-hmm. supplement the more high-end like SLR camera one of the other people were using, just just turned and, because it was more mobile, he turned and he snapped a picture of that corner. The photograph came out completely bleached. Mm-hmm. Um, he tried it again, same thing. So he's mm. like, okay, the camera's fucked up. She said, well, the ca- it's, it's moved now. It's moved over to that corner. He took a picture of that corner. 
another photo, Polaroid photograph came out completely bleached. Now you could see details, so it took a picture, but the picture right. itself was was whited out for the most part, except for a few details on the fringes of of the corner. That was like a dollar a picture too. Fuck yeah! <laughs> uh, she then said it it left. She's like, okay, it's gone now. It's gone now. So he decided as kind of a control to see what the camera was doing. He took a picture of the corners that he had just tried to again. They came out just fine. Oh. Uh, a couple minutes later, this cold air just roared into the room with all of them there. They they could hear it. It brought this ungodly smell with them that actually caused several of the people present to vomit. Mm. And so Taff aimed his camera and started taking a, to, to snap a picture of the doorway where this was coming from. That picture came out completely blanched white, except for a weird bright orb that you can see at the bottom of the frame. Mm. A few minutes later, Doris said, it's right in front of my face. So Taff took a picture of it. The picture came out. But her face, and only her face, is completely bleached out. <gasps> and then a few minutes later, she said it's or a few seconds later, she said it's gone. He took a control picture, comes out just fine. Wow. Just fucking fine. That was fucking weird. So one of the phenomena that was pretty typical was, uh, so typical that they were like, they just kind of got used to it, was that these glowing balls of what Taff refers to as like a plasma-like substance roughly the size of a fist and always greenish yellow in color he would say would just kind of whiz about the room they'd materialize out of nowhere whiz about the room like little bullets and uh you know, noisily they could hear them and he said like they would try to extinguish or account for all outward sources of light and they would actually get brighter the more you like block the windows he's like they were bright enough to fucking see by without any other lights in the room mm-hmm. and they would happen and uh, they tried to photograph these objects, but they were really difficult to know where they were coming from because they followed no logical pattern. They didn't know where they were coming from. They just kind of appear. So they would try to capture these things on camera at the time, and they couldn't necessarily. But there were a few photographs that came out of uh, of these phenomena where you can see arcs of light that ought not be there. And these are arcs of light that look like someone is shining a light against a wall, except the picture is of a corner and the light does not bend to accommodate the corner. So it is in three-dimensional space. Okay. And these are pictures, these particular uh, photographs were taken by the SLR uh, photographic equipment and Taff himself uh, took these pictures, quite a, I think there's about six or seven of them, to uh, a guy named Adrian Vance, who was the uh, uh, editor then of the uh, West Coast Popular Photographer, uh, a popular photography magazine on the West Coast. And he, expert, was like, there's, I, I have no idea why this camera, you shouldn't be able to fake this, and there's no reason with these lenses you're using that this should happen like this. This right. is, This makes no sense to me. So those those pic- pictures are still, and you can look them up, those pictures are still pretty convincing pictures. Now, a few weeks further into the case, uh, the lights appeared again for everyone, and novelist Frank DeFelita, who was a friend of Doris's and was present for much of the investigation, he uh, recalls that she grew uh, infuriated with these lights one day. Doris, who would just kind of sit on the bed, and she finally just said, what the fuck? She said something to the uh, to the effect of, like, I don't want to see your goddamn lights. Show us yourself, you motherfucker. Show us yourself. Mm-hmm. Sounds, sounds like something I might say. <laughs> and it complied. Uh, the light, this is fucked up. The lights coalesced oh. around her mm-hmm. in the corner by the bed. And materialized into the kind of vague shape of a male torso. Uh, Di Felita was there, and and again, 
20 people saw this and they all saw the same thing. Felita, De Felita rather, said, you know, yeah, you could see an arm articulating, you could see a bit of a chest, you could see a, a hint of a shoulder and a neck, and of all things, he said, a bald head. Oh my god, no! And, and it moved in such a way that it ruled out the possibility of it being a still image somehow projected onto the wall. This thing was in three-dimensional space and it looked like splotches of a human torso bathed in what Taff referred to as lime green light. Mm. They took pictures of it, and the pictures come out hazy, and you can't really see much. You can just see Doris, and you can see this area of the camera is is kind of obscured or blanched. You can see something. It looks like a mist. But they're like, no, that's not what it looked like to us. So Tav was so frustrated that they couldn't get the shit on camera, even though all these people were, you know, skeptics alike. Because this is a team of people all have different backgrounds and different uh, different uh, agendas with, with regards to their, their interest in the paranormal. Some are there like, oh, it's this, it's that. Others would be like, no, I'm here to disprove it. And all of them saw the same thing. We're like, yeah, we saw what looked like the hint of a fucking naked bald guy in the goddamn corner after she fucking yelled at it. And this would happen frequently. Things would happen when Doris, drunk, would be like, fuck you, do something. I'm tired of these. I'm tired of looking like an asshole in front of these people. And something would happen like this. So Tav was like, if we can't fucking photograph it, what the hell is going on? Like, is this somehow not in objective space, but it's somehow being kind of, you know, put into our minds somehow? I mean, if it's a hallucination, why the fuck are we all having the same hallucination at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Um... And back at UCLA, Dr. Thelma Moss, who wasn't officially part of the investigation, she was very skeptical of all this. She was like, it is too good to be true. This kind of shit never happens. Mm -hmm. This is bullshit. She showed up uh, to spend a night there with the team and fucking nothing happened. Oh, of course. And so she was like, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I, whatever. And, but at that time, Taff notes, uh, Doris has started backing off on the alcohol. And so as she did that, Things seemed to calm down a little bit. Uh, another side effect, happy side effect of Doris's newfound sobriety was the fact that she mustered up the money and the will to finally fucking move. Right. So she moved, uh, and actually, it took. She she kind of wanted to stay anonymous. She didn't really want to continue doing this. This was such an interruption of her life, and she's like, "Ah, you guys can't help me. It's whatever. I, I, you've got what you've got. Whatever." So Tav had to actually do some digging to find her again after a few weeks. And they did. And she said, yeah, it's it started up again. You know, mm-hmm. I, by that time, I think she had gotten back into drinking and the stuff started up again. And this time the team found her. What's weird about this occasion is when she moved, her neighbors started experiencing stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, she had not talked to anybody about what had been going on. She was deeply embarrassed by it. Didn't well, what about people the people, the crazy. neighbors that had witnessed it, though? Well, but these were neighbors that were friends of hers at the Culver City place. At her new place, oh, her new she place. told no one. Okay, but uh, the new neighbors started to have But the stuff. new neighbors okay. started having poltergeist experiences gotcha. of their own. Like, cabinets would open and close. They'd hear rattling. They'd hear the rocks on their roofs or whatever. The lights would go on and off. Appliances, all that shit. Uh, Taft calls it a radiant effect. Like, whatever was going on with Doris was so powerful that it was affecting people living in houses on the same street. Uh, Doris never told any of them this. This was this was a long time before Taft began publicly talking about the case and, and years before Defalita published the novel. Mm-hmm. And Doris didn't fucking tell anybody because she just she didn't want she just didn't want this to be a thing. She didn't want her she didn't want this in her life. She didn't want to talk, but she wanted no publicity. And in fact, it's still extremely hard to find any pictures of her that were not taken by investigators, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while they were there 
one night uh, at the new place, they uh, they heard a vase, a large like house plant, topple over, and they rushed to see what had done it because no one no one was in that area of the house, and they found the the vase had toppled over and spewed dirt everywhere, and it was right in front of a condenser mic they had set up to take recording. So they stopped the recording, uh, found out that it had already stopped, oh. and they listened back to it, and in the recording of the vase falling leading up to it, embedded in the rec- audio recording, and the sound of dragging footsteps and heavy breathing right into the fucking Ew. mic. And that, and then right before it shuts off. Ew. Now, the last really uh, crazy thing that happened to Doris that Taff saw, now they had hung her bedroom at the new place with black poster board, with duct tape everywhere, mm-hmm. just to kind of better be able to capture lights as they appeared. Uh, and one night, they were trying to make these lights appear again, or you know, uh, have Doris conjure them, or whatever she did. And instead of the lights, the tape ripped off the wall violently, like someone oh. had just jerked it off. And one of the poster boards came flying off and hit Doris in the head. Now, Gary, uh, Carrie Gaynor, who you will recall, part of this investigation from the start, was in the room with her at the time and was like, do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and it fucking did. It ripped, off, it ripped off another poster board and it flew across the room and hit her in the head. And then she was like, stop telling it to do that. <laughs> well, that was by then she'd had enough and she was like, I want to stop this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a subject of this. I don't I want to fuck you. All of you get out. And she moved not long after that to San Bernardino, and Taft tried to keep in contact with her, but she wouldn't let them come study her again. She was Mm -hmm. done with it, and later she moved to Texas, uh, of all places. And uh, uh, then she made no, just completely disappeared. She died in obscurity in 1994 of uh, pulmonary failure. And it's kind of sad, I mean, that her, we can assume that this stuff followed her probably all her life, and uh, her sons, which who never, ever, ever, ever sought publicity for it. One a reporter in recent years found her, uh, the son who was 14 at the time, her middle child, and kind of talked to him about it, and he said unequivocally, yeah, it's all true, everything they wow. said happened. He's like, the only thing Taft got wrong is that our fucking house wasn't that shitty. <laughs> <laughs> but everything else happened as right. as as Taff and the others say it was. Ooh. So if you ever go and watch the movie and read the book, the book is a fictionalized account. Like it, it's the premise of it is Doris's story, but then uh, Defalita and then later the filmmakers take it into a very sci-fi like area, like kind of like that. Yeah. So don't don't um, and they don't sell it as that. They just say kind of inspired by a true mm-hmm. story. So if you if any of you viewers go out and watch the movie or read the book, be aware that. Not everything in the book is uh, what happened what to happened. poor Doris. Well, and it makes you wonder, too, because there's that whole phenomenon of, like, people causing supernatural activity themselves. If they're under a lot of duress, it usually happens, like, with, like, pubescent yes. teen girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Happens quite a bit. Um, so it makes you wonder if this was something that maybe Doris was causing herself. Not that, meant not on purpose. No, of but course just, not. No, but it was like a subconscious manifestation yeah. of these powers. And when she drank, it, it like those powers were just more encouraged. She became less filtered. She became more irate. She became mm-hmm. less stable. Mm-hmm. And then 
whatever she was creating would then become that way It too. could have also come from one of her children. It's true, too. Because she and had... That when she drank, they all, got mad. And yeah. themselves in that age where they're going through pubescence. And, and they're angry at and her. And they're angry at her. And so she gets the brunt of the activity. What's unusual in, in Doris's case is how violent it was. I, I'm not aware of yeah. a modern case in which anyone claims to have been sexually assaulted by a ghost. Mm-mm. And that's weird. Now There's that, that one be... woman who married a ghost, and they, I believe she had sex with several ghosts, but that was consensual. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> well, good for her. That's right. Um, but yeah, that is the story wow. of Doris Spider, the, the true life basis for the entity, which that's... should have been called the entities because she said there were three of them, but there you go. It should have been called fucking what? <laughs> right. <laughs> Shit. Right. All right. Well, thank you. Are you ready for my story? I am so ready. Okay. I am doing the St. Augustine Lighthouse, which is believed to be one of the most haunted lighthouses in the world. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Are you ready? Uh Uh-huh. Wait, let me just... I always got to slurp. I'm not... I'm going to try to do this without slurping. He's not going to do it. We haven't clinked yet. Oh, clink. Okay, there we go. All right, I'm going to... That's a hard half of it just spilled down my chin. I have you to slurp, practice, Jamie. Practice, practice, practice. <sighs> um, also, you just admitted it was a slurp. <laughs> <laughs> I never deny that I slurp. You absolutely do, and I have it recorded. You called it, you said it wasn't a slurp, it was a... Sip. You were sipping noisily or some shit. You it was some... make an excellent paranormal investigator. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, the St. Augustine Lighthouse has been an active working lighthouse since it was first built in 1874. It is an American made, because it's in Florida, obviously, sturdy, well built Alabama brick, Philadelphia iron tower with 219 steps and small landings, offering breaks between the 50 winding step interval staircases. On each landing, There is a window looking out at the sea or the town of St. Augustine or other buildings on Anastasia Island. A not-for-profit maritime museum currently owns the lighthouse and the museum is open daily and all admission fees support continued preservation of the lighthouse as well as five other historic structures. That's nice. The museum even offers ghost tours. Of course it does. Why? Look at this. Because it's haunted? Probably. Okay, so... (laughs) A little history of the lighthouse. It is the second lighthouse built in St. Augustine. The first was built in 1824 and is also the first official lighthouse in Florida. Now, there were some other janky-ass wooden towers built by the British and Spanish prior to 1824, so the history goes back like 400 years, but they didn't win, and we get to write history. So they were the first lighthouses. They were. I think the big difference was uh, they were made of brick. And mm. the uh, British and Spanish ones were made of wood. And they were just more like towers where they would... They just weren't as durable. They just weren't as durable. Mm. Uh, and that's why they're, they're not there, probably. Uh, so... <laughs> In 1870, beach erosion threatened the original lighthouse. And eventually, 10 years later, the lighthouse would crumble into the sea. So, <laughs> yeah. Construction on the new one began about a quarter of a mile away in 1871. The new tower was finished in 1874 and was first lit by the new keeper, William Russell, who was the only lighthouse keeper to work both lighthouses. 
For 20 years, the site was manned by headkeeper Major William A. Harn. Harn had been a Union war hero who had commanded his own battery at Gettysburg. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a big deal. He and his wife, Kate, had <laughs> six daughters, and they were known for serving lemonade out on the porches of the keeper's house, which was constructed as a Victorian duplex while Harn worked there. He actually died of tuberculosis on April 1st, 1899, which oh. was April Fool's Day. Which was, oh, yeah. Unlike last time. Unlike last time, which was April 11th. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's an easy mistake to make. It it's is. just two ones. Two ones. Um, but he actually died. So tuberculosis was like, April Fool's, kidding, you're not you're really dead. alive. You're <laughs> dead. Uh, pretty much. Oh, he was still the head keeper while that, and I thought it was pretty cool. After he died, his wife, Kate, and this is in the late 1800s, right? She became the second assistant keeper. Hmm. official light keeper yeah so that was pretty cool uh they must have really liked her and all of everything i read said the the keepers were all very committed to the lighthouse and the safety and how it would you know save it's a sacred tr- it's a sacred yeah. trust i mean because yeah. that's like it's the it's the equivalent now of air traffic controllers right basically. right husbands like, and wives would work together the kids would get involved mm-hmm. it was very much a familial thing um it was a big deal during World War II, the Coast Guard trained in St. Augustine and used the lighthouse as a lookout post for enemy ships and submarines, which frequented the coastline. Mm. I did not realize that. Uh, by 1907, the lighthouse had indoor plumbing, and that was followed by electricity in the keeper's quarters by 1925. The light itself was electrified in 1936 and automated in 1955. As the light was automated, positions for three keepers slowly dwindled down until the 1960s when there were no more keepers. Because mm. it was automated. Automated? Stupid automated. robots stealing jobs. That's right. In 1986, the original 1874 lens, they were still using it, wow. and someone shot it with a rifle. <gasps> what? Oh. Yeah. Maybe someone had lost a job. I don't know. It, but it, someone shot it. And although they did consider replacing it with, like, a modern uh, airport beacon, Mm -hmm. they actually restored the nine-foot-tall lens, which has 370 handmade prisms in it. It is still in use today. That is so cool. Today, the St. Augustine Light Station consists of the 165-foot 1874 tower, the 1876 Keeper's House, Two summer kitchens that were added in 1886, a 1941 U.S. U.S. Coast Guard barracks, and a 1936 garage that was home to a Jeep repair facility during World War II. Wow. Yeah. They're going crazy. A group called LAMP, the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, Incorporated. That's a clever acronym. I like it, too. It's a research group that has found and excavated several shipwrecks off the coast of St. Augustine. Yeah, so there was a lot of information about lighthouses and this and that. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they were like, shipwrecks. And I was like, what? So I could have I could have talked a lot about shipwrecks. but oh, That shipwrecks fascinate oh, me. Me too. So much. Yeah. So just a few of what they found. Um, the oldest wreck was the Sloop Industry, which was a British supply ship lost on May 6, 1764, while attempting to make port. The second oldest ship they found is an unidentified colonial sailing vessel believed to have been carrying Loyalist refugees during the December 18, 1782 evacuation of Charleston at the end of the American Revolution. St. Augustine was still loyal, a loyal British colony at the time, 
Of that final fleet that left Charleston, as many as 16 vessels were lost on the sandbar in front of the St. Augustine Inlet. Lamp is still finding and excavating ships, uh, shipwrecks. Three additional historic shipwrecks were found in 2015 and 2016, and one of those appears to date back to the late 18th century. Numerous artifacts from these shipwrecks are kept on display in the Lighthouse Museum. Which takes us to the haunting. Yeah. Okay. okay, I find this all this fascinating, especially because of Brandon and I are scuba divers. I know. I kept thinking about you when I was looking at this too. And we have done one wreck dive. Yeah. It was was a wreck dive. It it wasn't technically a wreck. It was just a a decommissioned ship that they purposely sunk to make kind of a dive Mm -hmm. site. But man, there is nothing in the world like swimming through a downed... Yeah. ship you know in this case it wasn't a very old ship not not comparatively but like man i want to i want to we want to get advanced certifications where we can actually go down and do actual like wreck exploration oh, that would which be is amazing. a whole other like tier of diving right <clears throat> yeah it's i mean yeah it sounds so cool and i think you can actually do i think you can dive by the old lighthouse and look at the ruins oh. of the old lighthouse oh too. my god i know <laughs> I did down. I dove. I dove off of uh, uh, in Hawaii. You can dive down to see an old bomber that's sunken down like 120 feet down or something like that. Right. It's way down there, and uh, it's it's an old World War II bomber that went down just in a training exercise. So no one, thankfully, no one died. Mm-hmm. But like, it's so creepy to go down there because it, there's no plane left. It's all been taken over by coral. So it's coral in the shape of an old plane. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's oh, that's fucking so cool. cool as hell. And that's only like 80 years old. Like, I can only imagine what something from the fucking 17th or the 18th, 18th century, century looks yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the lighthouse's earlier keepers was a man named Peter Rasmussen. He was known for his meticulous eye and watchful manner of maintaining the lighthouse. He was also known for his love of cigars and as one of the first ghosts that people report coming into contact with. Over the years, the smell of Peter's cigar is one of the most common phenomena experienced by staff members and guests. Another light keeper, Joseph Andrew, is how I'm going to say it. Could be Andrew, but I'm going Andrew. We're painting the tower. He was painting the tower when the scaffolding he was on fail, failed and he fell about 60 feet to his death. Oh, shit. According to an article written in the St. Augustine Examiner on December 5th, 1859, he died in the line of duty. Mm. It's He has been seen and heard at the top of the tower. Mm. The most popular story is a tragedy that befell the children of Hezekiah Pitty, the superintendent of lighthouse construction from 1871 to 74. On July 10th of 1873, four of Hezekiah's children and a daughter of one of the workers they were enjoying a ride on a hand car that would take supplies from the water to the lighthouse and back and forth for construction. When it wasn't in use, the kids would play on it for obvious reasons. Right. I would play on it now. <laughs> Sounds fun as fuck. Right. But on this particular day, the brakes failed and it no longer sounds fun as fuck. Yeah. The hand car and the five children were thrown into the water. Oh, yeah. No. While workmen were able to save two of Hezekiah's children, I think what happened is they got trapped underneath the handcar, and they had to pull the handcar off of them. And by the time they got them off of Mary, who was 15, Eliza, who was 13, and the workman's daughter, they had all died from drowning. Mm. Now, the workman's daughter, you don't find her in all of the stories because she was an African-American girl. And so people will, in the newspapers, some of the newspapers around the time, they don't even include her. 
which is Jesus, fucking bullshit. It's awful. Yeah. It's fucking awful. Um, so it's interesting, too, because when people report girls, they either report two girls or one. And keep in mind, by girls, it's like <laughs> they were mid-teens. Mm. So girl is not, like, they weren't like eight-year-olds running yeah. around. Almost um, marrying age by the standard. Right, exactly, yeah. So uh, you either two girls or just one girl can be heard laughing. And they have been seen, two and one, have been seen at the top of the tower late at night. The three girls are never together, though. It's always just two or just one. And others have spotted Eliza floating above the grounds wearing the same blue dress she died in. Here's a crazy story. A cell phone worker snapped a pic of another worker. They were on a 300-foot self-support tower mm-hmm. and they're about 250 feet off the air. And it wasn't very far from the lighthouse. Um, but it was far enough. Like, it was in the background yeah. of this picture. And when they looked at it later and they zoomed, they looked in, there is clearly a woman... Of some sort, a female of some sort, probably. Long dark hair in a long white gown. Mm, hashtag bitches. Hashtag, white. yeah. Standing there. And I have this picture if you want to look. Yes, yes, let me see. So you can see, I mean, she's oh! very clearly just standing there at the edge. And they said at the time they did not see anybody standing on the lighthouse. Oh, and it's not like oh. they're close to the lighthouse either, they're right. far away from it. So, uh, yeah, it's that was a crazy picture. Crazy. Ooh, okay, yeah, you gotta, uh, you gotta include that. So. Uh-huh, I will put it on the Instagrams. So the Coast Guard originally bought the land from several owners. Like they would buy parcels from several different people so that they could own the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the owners, Doctor Ballard, disputed his neighbors for so long. And by disputed, I mean he was like, "I'm not selling, no matter what. Doesn't matter." And so the Coast Guard was offering reasonable rates. He wouldn't take it until finally it's the government. So they were like, cool, we're going to give you this lowball offer. <laughs> we're going to declare imminent domain. Yeah. It's, it's, you either take this little bit or you take nothing. <laughs> or we just take your shit. Yeah. And so he had no choice, but he swore he would never leave the land. And some people believe he has kept his word. Uh, take the Lighthouse Museum, for example. Formerly, formerly the head lighthouse keeper's residence it stood empty in 1970 because there were no more lighthouse keepers and they had rented it out for a while, mm-hmm. but it was empty at the time in 1970 and it was destroyed by a mysterious fire. Hmm. Only the shell of the building was left. It gutted it. While it was thought that it was an act of vandalism, some think the entity of Dr. Ballard, Ballard may have started it as an act of revenge. It seems a stretch to me, except. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in yes. 1981. So this is 11 years later. The workers who were hired to rebuild the inside of the house endured the wrath of poltergeist activity from an angry spirit trying to scare them away. For no apparent reason, a scaffold collapsed, beams fell down, and a spike either fell or was thrown at a worker. But instead of narrowly missing him, it hit him and he had to go to the hospital. An unfriendly mm. atmosphere was felt by all, and it was so bad, some workers chose to quit. Wow. <laughs> However, when the house was fully renovated, all the poltergeist activity ceased. And this I read on one site, but then also, I think that was only until they made it the museum and put the artifacts in there, because it is quite, quite haunted now. Oh. 
Well, yeah, you get these fucking artifacts. They, yeah. Mm. The, within the museum basement, there are all kinds of artifacts on display. Uh, the aforementioned shipwrecks could are where those are. Uh, it's thought that many of the spirits attached to certain items may be haunting the building. A tall male entity dressed in a military maritime uniform, gray attire of some sort that looked military of some sort, has been seen standing in the doorway of the video room, hanging out by the cistern, and seen walking across the area. I think he's the one that they refer to as the blue man, but there's so many that might be a different guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hashtag music bastards in blue, right? Woo. <laughs> <laughs> the music boxes wind themselves up and play. Chairs are rearranged in the video room and sometimes overturned. On the first floor, the entity of a young girl plays tricks on the staff. This is also where the cigar smoke is most often noted. A lot of activity has been reported on the second floor as well. People on the first floor will hear the sound of someone walking on the second floor when they're the only ones in the building. When the house was rented in the 1960s, so this is before the fire, mm-hmm. uh, it was rented out to people. There, uh, Someone had a guest that was staying, and, and they woke up in the wee hours of the morning and were startled to see a young girl, around 13 to 15, standing beside his bed, wearing a long dress. She stared at him and slowly faded into the woodwork. The faces of young female entities have also been seen peeking out of the windows on the second floor. In fact, the house is so haunted that a keeper in the 1950s refused to stay there. And that was before the fire. Oh, God. Right. So it seems like there's a lot of stuff that happened before the fire. Then the fire happened. It sat empty for 11 years. Mm. So then these they came and they rebuilt it. And then there wasn't anything, I think, until the museum came in. But I feel like the museum came in pretty quickly. So maybe that I just got bad information about that it wasn't haunted since because it's really fucking haunted. Unless, well, it just may be perceptions may have changed. I mean, it, may, it doesn't sound like it was open to a lot of professionals going in and out of there. So, like, right. maybe there weren't enough people around to have experiences. Or you know what I mean? Right. Like it, it, could it could be. be yeah. I mean once it turns into a museum, you have a much you have a lot more people coming through it. Right. And so That's if true. there's stuff there, it's likely to get reported. Whereas if in like the interval of like ten, fifteen, twenty years where it was less active, right. There there may have been eight people that were on site at the time, you yeah. know, in that time. So the odds are less. Right. That's true. That's true. Um or someone was just making shit up to make it sound more dramatic. I'm just <laughs> telling all the facts I see. Also, also <laughs> it could be. The gift, okay, so then you have the gift shop, which is no, located next to the lighthouse and museum. Inside the gift shop, items are moved around, sometimes disappear, perhaps borrowed, but always reappear <laughs> at some point. Many believe that the girls are responsible for this activity. The girls get blamed for a lot of shit. Typical. But, you know, why not? Might as well have a good time. Outside the lab. I hope they're having a good time. I do, too. All three of them. Outside the lighthouse, the sound of young girls playing, talking in the swing set area have been reported, as well as the swings swinging on their own. Mm. The entity of what is assumed to be Dr. Ballard Ballard has been seen and heard stomping around the grounds, all pissed off and shit. A female entity is... (laughs) Yeah, he's real mad. He's real... That's the kind of ghost I'll be when I die. Let's be real. And it's assumed... Like, motherfucker! Like, they're just gonna hear it go like... We hear this disembodied voice saying, God damn it, all the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) It's weird. Um, And it is assumed that this is Dr. Ballard. 
they because they don't know for sure, but he's the one that was angry. He's the one that promised to stay on the land. He's you know. So, I mean, it's good story. It's a good story. Him, yeah, but it could be anybody. But it I mean, could be anybody. Maybe there's yeah. some of the story we don't know yet. It's true. Who has every? Who has equal right to be mad? Yeah, maybe someone who went down with a ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So the okay. So he's stomping around and shit. A female entity is seen in the area right in back of the lighthouse, just going about her business, doing her things. Uh, inside the lighthouse, cold spots are attributed to a male entity described as the unseen supervisor. Oh. David Laffham author of Ghosts of St. Augustine, reports that one night, the automated light system in the lighthouse was misbehaving. When he arrived to fix it, he went across the yard to the lighthouse. He heard a man's footsteps behind him on the gravel as he walked. When he turned around, the footsteps stopped, and nobody was there. As he climbed up the stairs to the top, he heard the footsteps of this unseen person coming up closely behind him. After checking out the problem and fixing it, he made a controlled yet Hasty exits. <laughs> Controlled, Controlled yet, yet hasty. hasty. Another male entity is seen inside the lighthouse. Same thing. He's just going about his business. He's got a job to do, and that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, another female entity has been seen on the stairs. Disembodied conversations between a male and female, which can't be understood, have been heard. And, of course, the laughter of girls has been reported. Three of them. Two or one. <laughs> It's really three, though. It's really three. One ghost tour host said he'd had a few arm hairs plucked off of him during in the basement of oh. the keeper's house. Yep. <laughs> and he'd had his ankle grabbed during a tour. It made it look as though he randomly tripped over air when he was just walking, but something had grabbed his ankle. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> this thing just happened, and everybody's like, sure, it did. Sure, you just tripped. <laughs> it was like, I just, well, like, my arm hair's gone. Yeah. So... Uh, if you've ever watched Ghost Hunters, they oh, have yeah. an episode yes. on this one. Oh. And it's one of the most popular clips they have. And it is one of it the most convincing so pieces of evidence they've ever found, right. in my so, opinion. If you haven't seen it, or if you have, this is what it is. They have a camera that's placed at the top and the bottom of the staircase of the lighthouse. And uh, they're basically looking at each other. And when they look um, up to the top in one of the recordings you can see a shadow kind of hovering at the side and then it goes up a couple of flights super fast like, like it just whips rockets right up. up and which is interesting because it could just go straight as fast as it was going but it went up the stairs mm-hmm. and then you can see the head of someone peek over the edge and yes. look down at the camera yes. it is so creepy it's really like it yeah it sends goose bumps it's it, so it good chills up my spine yeah yeah, it's one of the, right. that show for years. I watched that show. It was one of the, it was one of the better, like one mm-hmm. of the first and one of the best mm-hmm. shows I of agree. its time. But they they only maybe a handful of pieces of video they got really I found compelling. Right, and, and that one, one is the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Mm. Uh, they also had I think they got some EVPs and some other stuff mm-hmm. there. A lot of people have investigated. Go to YouTube, Google it. Like there are a lot of investigations, um, and you can watch people walk around and, and investigate there are, there's actually in the literature there's a there's a there's a large number a pretty large number of haunted lighthouses mm-hmm. and i can't help but wonder if it has something to do with one obviously it's an intense 
place. Mm-hmm. It's it's business. Like if if someone's not doing their job, people die. A lot of people die. Mm-hmm. But also, there's some. Um, I, I wonder at least if it has something to do with the shape. Phallic. Well, it just it's conical, <laughs> and maybe I mean, maybe it's sure. It just sure. Looks it looks like, like a, a giant di- dick with a light on it. <laughs> it's a di- giant. Uh, well, now <laughs> that sounds absurd. <laughs> But I, I just wonder, because, like, I've heard of so many lighthouses being haunted where they, like, some of the best evidence in the world for ghostly activity come from people investigating lighthouses. Yeah. St. Augustine being one of them, if not the biggest one. But I, I wonder if there's something about lighthouses. Like, what is it about a lighthouse that makes them, that makes evidence more gettable there? Uh, it's unusual. It's yeah. worth looking into. The- Maybe phallic shapes do attract ghosts. I mean, I know if I were a ghost, (laughs) I would be attracted. Right, you'd be like, "What is that with a light on it?" It's a a giant phallic shape, and it saves lives. Maybe, (laughs) maybe those ghosts just going about their business means they're just going about their business. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so there's this this uh, famous skeptic. A researcher named Joel Nickel, mm. who in, uh, he investigated, he, he writes that there's no credible evidence that the lighthouse is haunted. He noted that supposed spooky noises or sounds from the tower have mundane explanations such as seagulls or the wind. I don't know about you, but I mistake the face of a seagull for two girls all the time. These guys, like these skeptics, come in and they're like, "It's it's it's bullshit. It's right. all uh, you just saw a coat hanging in a closet. That's all." They're all like, they're just as committed. Like some of them have a have something interesting to say, right? Because they're gonna be wrong, and the they're gonna be wrong in the in the world of paranormal investigation. There's a lot of bullshit, but there's just as much bullshit in the world of skeptical inquiry too. And this guy, to his credit, doesn't say, you know, it can't be real. But it seems to dismiss all of these experiences from multiple people. As seagulls. As seagulls and, and, and the wind. And, I mean, decades and decades of experiences. It seems like people trivial. people spend yeah. their entire lives on the coast yeah. near a place like this don't fucking know the difference between a seagull and right. a person. Wouldn't or... everything be haunted? It, I mean, in St. Augustine, everything is. But I mean... <laughs> Maybe he's on to something. No. <laughs> right. Maybe that's what it is. It's all just seagulls. That's why nothing in the middle America is... Oh, wait. It's wind. It's all wind. I, uh, it's so condescending. It's like people that disclaim every... Like everything with the... You know, the people that look, look into UFOs, for example. It's like, oh, it's all, it's all Venus or it's swamp gas. And we're like... Right. I know you think you're the smartest fucking person in the room and that everyone else is a blithering fucking Neanderthal who can't tell the difference between headlights and a what they think of as a ghost, but it's not true. So sometimes, and I'm not trying to shit on every skeptical out there, I think they're necessary, uh, but sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, I feel like skeptics are have an agenda of coming off or they they're they're propelled by this belief that everyone in the world is just not as smart as they are. Yes, I agree. And it pisses me the fuck off. Yeah. Because I'm the smart one. Right. (laughs) No, that's not true. I just read a lot. It doesn't make me smart. It doesn't make me smart. It makes me well read. You sound smart. Well, that's 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 maybe proof that maybe the skeptics are onto something. Maybe people are stupid. (laughs) It's just the wind and the seagulls. He doesn't he's not really smart. It's just this wind and the seagulls. (laughs) But if that's the best explanation you could come up with for a hundred years of ghost stories. For seeing the face 
of a woman looking down a tower at the top of the stairs from seeing the shadow moving when you know nobody's yeah. there, yeah. the reaction is, that's eh, the sequel. <laughs> he is no mental powerhouse. Right. He is no right. William Blake. Exactly. And even if even if Ghost Hunter staged the whole thing, there are so many other witnesses mm-hmm. and experiences that it just... It, you know, I felt the need to include it because it was such a, ridic- a ridiculous dismissal of all yeah. these experiences. It's very unsatisfying. Yeah. When you have history attached to the place like this place does, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, I didn't even go into the 200 years before the U.S. had it. There was there's history there, right, too. Yeah. So, you know, it just there's there's. It just seemed trivial. I had to include it because it was so stupid. Thank you. Let, let us go on this little yeah. skeptic rant for right. a little while. Right. Skeptics are good. I am a healthy skeptic, I believe. I try to be skeptical um, as well, but you know, but there's it, a line. You know, in a lot of this, they're saying, oh, this must be Dr. Ballard, but they don't know for sure. There's a lot of it they don't know for sure. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean what's happening isn't happening. It may not exactly. be the same guy that they think it is. Yeah. You know, the building may have had no hauntings until the materials moved in. Or it could be bullshit, mm-hmm. but I feel the need to say, hey, this is what they said, but then all of these stories come out. So, right, you right. know, you've got to have all the facts before, you know, you can just be like... It's good to have dissenting this. opinion. That's right. That's right. So, uh, what's exciting, though, is uh, that the ghost tours mm-hmm. are year-round. I believe, like, every oh, fucking it's day. Florida, so the weather's yeah. always the same. And you can, um, some of them, I think you can rent ghost hunting equipment. The museum has one that they put on themselves that you, where you go up into the lighthouse and you can do a whole bunch of shit like that. So, um, we need to do that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You can check it out. And you also can check it out. Um, and, and if you do and crazy shit happens, please tell us all about it. Oh my God. Yes. Send in a story. Yeah. So (sighs) that's, uh, that's the St. Augustine lighthouse. (sighs) It's a good story. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. I didn't I'm realize go how incredibly... Like, I knew it was haunted, but then you read all of the details and all of the experiences and all of the, the you know, tragedies, which are sad but fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it's just... Well, and when you when you talked about doing it, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I knew it from the Ghost mm-hmm. Hunters episode, which is like, God, 15 years old now or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, oldie buddy goodie, but, like, I remember being really, like... Really stunned yeah. by that footage. What well, and and yes, of course, it's a television show, so the the footage could very well be faked. But like you said, there's a history of mm-hmm. stories that it's just so it's just so condescending, patronizing, and uncharitable to think of all the stories <laughs> as being so like just oh, people were stupid or they're liars. Like, yeah, and I that doesn't that does not satisfy me as an explanation. Like, Mm-mm. and the fact that so many other lighthouses in the country are known Same to be thing. haunted. Yeah, um, I it makes you wonder too because I've heard that certain people, if they're sensitive or whatever, they're like beacons of light and attract spirits because they see that light and they're like "Ooh, what's going on over there mm-hmm. and a lighthouse is literally a beacon of light <laughs> so true. maybe it works the same way true what if there's a really psychic person at a lighthouse that seems like a terrible idea if, <laughs> if like the premise for ghostbusters 3 right if like, you're a psychic don't go to a lighthouse <laughs> or, or do and tell and then us, tell us everything it. yeah yeah that's true yeah. <laughs> right i don't know what i was thinking 
Okay, so oh. that's it. That's our that's today's episode yeah. of Ghoul Intention. Ghoul Intention. Thank you for listening. Beautiful symmetry. Yes, and uh, don't forget, we'll post some of those pictures on Instagram. We do it every mm-hmm. week, mm-hmm. and we'll tweet things on the Twitter. Um, Instagram is just Ghoul Intentions. Twitter is at Ghoul Intent, and um, and we'll be announcing something very exciting soon yeah um that hopefully we'll have more content so we'll uh, let you know soon about that so yeah so exciting yeah. yes and uh, of course you can go to ghoulintentions.com for links to those uh, social media sites we just mentioned and to listen to previous episodes of course listen to all of them um and to shop at our brand new store mm-hmm. you know has a cool merch that we're very very proud of and most importantly where you can submit now uh, more easily than ever, yes. your own personal ghost story right. for consideration to be read as the cult open of a future episode of Cool Intentions. That's right. Now, it's time for the quote. Okay. Are you ready? I got last week's. You did. I don't feel I'll get this week. I feel like we need this one this week. This, we? we need this week's one. What? <laughs> if Blake can say what the hand dare sees the fire, what the weeks happen? You can you can, you can use whatever tortured syntax you want. All right. Understand. All right. You ready? Yes. Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers to turn on the light. <laughs> it sounds like it's from Lord of the Rings, but I know it's not, because that's like may it be a light for you in dark places. But it's similar, mm-hmm. and I want to say it comes from something around about the same time. No. no. Oh, then I'm completely wrong. Do it one more time, just to see if it jogs something. Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers to turn on the light. Oh, showgirls! <laughs> no. <laughs> You're so wrong. It is, of course, Dumbledore. From Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's a good one. That's it's a good, a good one. Quote. That's and it's funny it. that I wouldn't know that because Prisoner of Azkaban is probably my favorite Harry I think Potter it's mine movie. Too. Yeah. It's such a beautifully made film. Right. It's really a lot of people don't like it. It's weirdly. one of my favorites. A lot of, a lot of it's fans when it first Harry... got dark, though, right? I, th- I mean, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it certainly seems so. But like, it's such a. It's the first one that feels like a real work of art. Yeah. The so, film, I, the mm-hmm. book, I've never read. But yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, and thanks, and you're right, we needed that quote. I think so, too. And it also, <laughs> it also tags in to our tagline. Yes, which, which is, is, remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.